as we continue in our meditations on the upper room discourse of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will read verse 20 to the end as we go into this section, but just a quick reminder that uh, in this prayer, really you can divide what Jesus was praying to the Father about in three sections. First of all, in verse 1 to verse 5, you have uh, Jesus praying for himself. And then in the longest section, verse 6 to verse 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that were immediately present with him. And then from verse 20 to the end, he now prays for the church universal. In other words, for the rest of us. Of course, as he is praying for the apostles, there are truths that he is praying about that are applicable to us as well today. But it's just helpful to recognize the fact that in verse 20, he changes gears and you can't miss it. So let me read from verse 20 down to the end. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Last time when we began to look at this third and last section of uh, the Lord's Prayer, we simply spent our time processing, allowing the thought to sink deep into us, the thought being that Jesus prays for us. I think it's something that ought to encourage us. I've often found that when individuals say to me that they either prayed for me today or they pray for me every day, it, it, it does affect me, and it affects me positively. 
I am encouraged to think that someone who has been spending time, their own precious time, has actually been using that time to remember my needs before the only one who ultimately can meet all my needs. And now, to think that not just a fellow human being would be in that context, but even the second person of the Blessed Trinity. I mean, that's overwhelming. That's a wow immediately there. So what we did, first of all, was to notice how in verse 20, Jesus took it for granted that his disciples would obey him in the Great Commission. And since he knew that they would go and preach, he just took that for granted. We saw it in this text. And then we noticed the ones that he was praying for. And it is not only for these, but also for those who believe in him through their word, through the preaching of the apostles or disciples. And then thirdly and lastly, we took note of the efficacy of his prayer. The fact that with respect to us, when we pray, God the Father can say yes, he can say wait, he can even say no. He can do that. But with respect to God the Son, his prayers are absolutely efficacious as he prays for us. Especially because his prayers are based on his finished work on Calvary. He, he has opened the door completely by his own shed blood. He has dealt with every reason why God would refuse to bless his own people. And therefore, when he prays, God answers. And what I want us to do today is to move on to see the first of the two prayer requests that the Lord Jesus Christ makes before the Father. He only makes two requests. Can you imagine? Only two. Uh, Solomon, praying for himself, asked for only one thing, wisdom. With respect to the Lord Jesus praying for us, he prays for only two things. The first one is a little surprising, as especially that it's a first prayer request, and it is for our unity, that we might be one. You'd think, is that the most important? But we'll discover uh, something of that in a moment. But the second reason is that we might get to heaven. That's the second reason. That finally, we who, are, who come to believe in him through the apostles, that we may indeed find ourselves in heaven. I want us to consider the very first one. And so I'll read verse 21 again. I'll combine it with verse 20 once more. So John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And what is he asking? That they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You can see what the request there is. Simple and straightforward, it is a request for unity. And I think, brethren, in the light of how fragmented the Christian church is, and how easily it fragments, how we readily divide and divide and divide in the Christian church, I think it's important that we pause for a moment and simply ask the question, what about this prayer? Because remember, we have said that the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ always gets answered. How can we explain Jesus' prayer being answered in the light of the levels of fragmentation that we have? Well, let's quickly delve into this request. And first of all, it is to simply acknowledge that what Jesus prays for as he brings the church militant before the Father is for its unity. I think that much we must all be agreed. He had already mentioned it earlier in verse 11 when he was praying for the apostles. Look at verse 11 as he was praying for the apostles to be kept safe in the world. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So it's something that he's already been praying about. In other words, it is high up on his agenda, in his thoughts, on his heart, that when he is gone, the people of God may not disintegrate, may not just go into fragmentation, but that they might remain on earth as one church. Now, very quickly, Jesus here is not primarily thinking organizationally. I think we need to just quickly clear that thought from our minds. He is not thinking about a one world church with its headquarters, either in Lusaka or in Rome or in Washington or wherever it might be, and, you know, sort of different levels of leadership, different levels of leadership all the way into um, the villages and so forth. That's obviously not what he has in mind. And I'll prove that to you in a moment. Rather, what he has in mind is an organic union. An organic union. In other words, it's not something mechanical where you're appointing people into different positions and coming up with different constitutions but it is one that grows out from a common link and it is one 
whole union. That's what he has in mind. And uh, the only thing I need to add, and we shall see that in a moment, is that although it is an organic union that is growing out from a center, it is visible. It is visible. So in that sense, the people around should be able to see it. And how do I know that those, true, those two points are true? Well, first of all, he says that they may all be one. Now, if it was merely the apostles he was leaving behind, we can say yes, perhaps they will organize themselves and so forth. But when he says that they may all be one, who are the all he's talking about? Well, we had it in the previous verse when he says he is praying for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, he is praying that the entire church militant, the whole of the church, across the whole of history, those are the ones he's praying for, and he's saying that they might be one. Those that have died, those who are living, and those who will come into the church through the preaching of those who are living, that they may all be one. He's not just thinking about those who are in one place at one time. If that was the case, then yes, we could say he might be thinking organizationally. And in that sense, we can say that today, in the 21st century, all the Christians across all the continents should be organized into one church. But he's saying all the believers, all who will ever hear the gospel and believe that they might be one. So it cannot be organizational. It doesn't matter how good you are at organizing. You can't do that. But secondly, I said it must be visible. And the reason why I say so is because of uh, the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the world should be able to see that unity. They should be able to see it. At any point in history, they should be able to say, Wow! These people are united. So it is in that sense that we must think in terms of it being an organic union. Because an organic union can go on generation after generation. It is the sense in which we speak about unity in a family. I don't know how many of you have uh, inherited Bibles like that, but I have. A Bible where my parents managed to put names of my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents. The only thing I notice is that further back they go, uh, it's just now one name and sometimes it just becomes father of so-and-so and things like that. You know, you, it's not the kind of names that uh, would mean much if I was going to attempt to become president of Zambia. 
but that's beside the point. The point is that there is still a sense of belonging. I can look at those names five or six generations backwards and say, I belong. These are my people. And therefore, in due season, passing it on to our children, they will also add to it and say, These, this is where we belong. There's nothing organizational there because, well, there is a little bit of it in terms of those of us who are alive, but those others have since died. They are gone. And for all we know, some of the children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of those who are there might be scattered all over the world. But wherever they are, if they were to see that Bible and see that family tree, they would say, we belong. These are our people. It is an organic union rather than a mechanical one. So I just thought let's clear that so that we realize that what Jesus is praying for here is something more fundamental. It's something deeper. It's something you cannot engineer by simply calling for some worldwide forum and say, guys, let's put aside our differences and consequently let us be one church. However, having said that, I've already said that it must be visible. It must be visible. And because it ought to be visible, Christ's prayer for the unity of the church should make us fight for, against rather, disunity in the church. We, we must be the very first ones when we begin to notice People overlooking the nature of the church, overlooking the nature of the gospel, wanting to fragment purely because of clubs and cliches and so on. We must be the very first ones to say, stop it! The church ought to be one. This is what happened with respect to the Apostle Paul. If we can just quickly go to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's one of those few letters like uh, the letter to the Galatians where the Apostle Paul, although he does say a few praises to God, and in this case he says praises to them about the way God has gifted them, he doesn't take long before he goes into the issue that is burning on his chest. And the issue that is burning on his chest is the divisions in the church. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. 
my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or you, were you baptized in or into the name of Paul? And chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all the way into chapter 4. Four entire chapters out of a letter or book with 15 chapters, those chapters are devoted. Argument after argument. One argument building upon another argument in order to simply say finally no this is wrong rather as he says finally in chapter 4 at the beginning this is how one should regard us that is Paul Apollos Peter and so on as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God that's really the way we should be looked at. And so he says in verse uh, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, my brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So he's argued, building it up. Because he wants this visible congregation, and that's what churches are, localized entities. He wants that church in its community to speak unity to the world. To speak unity to the world. We should be like him. Let me also add before we look at the model that is given, that God has formed the church so that its very DNA, the way in which he has made it, is opposed to disunity. That's the way he has wired the church, that it has a sense of I belong, a very real sense of I belong. Still, in 1 Corinthians but this time, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. Let me begin with verse 14. Well, let me begin with verse 12 down to verse 13, and then I'll skip, skip, skip a few things. So, verse 12. For just as the body is one, notice, unity, and has many members, and all the members, though many, are one body, again, unity, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and then these are the varieties, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So I'll come to that this week and next time when we're in this passage. That is really what Jesus is praying about. Let's go on. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. In other words, there's a variety in the midst of that unity. If the food 
should say because I'm not a hand and not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. No, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, this is the way the DNA is for the church, rather for the human body. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. I mean, this is incredible what God has done. And in each one of those segments, you can say yes, 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 that's true. And then he goes on to say, but God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If, so he's transitioned now from the human body to the church, by the way. And so he says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He has put it into the very DNA of the human body, and I hope we shall see in a moment the DNA of the church. That in actual fact, the way he has formed us, there is wired into our system something that keeps us one. What is that? Well, that's what we go on to look at in verse 21. The unity is fashioned after the unity in the Godhead that is between the Father and the Son. Between the Father and the Son. It's fashioned after that unity. Let's go back to our text. Verse 21. That they may, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Yeah. Now, if you feel like your brain is going around in circles, that's okay. Because we are dealing with here the deep things of God. And God is an infinite being. And therefore, we cannot completely comprehend him. However, if we take two steps backwards and ask ourselves, what is Jesus speaking about here? May I suggest to you that the best way to understand it is that he is speaking about the way in which the three persons of the Godhead are integrated into one. Integrated. Or I can speak in terms of them having a, an organic union. An organic union. Let me try and and explain that. With, with, 
mechanical joints mechanical joints you can easily say that this part ends here this part begins here you can easily say that and often there is a screw or a nut and bolt that keep the two together you can tell which one has gone into the other you can it's very easy okay anything that's mechanical you can easily separate you can't do that with that which is organic because it grows one is as it were growing out of the other so for instance if if you were to go to the doctors and your arm perhaps is developing gangrene or your foot or your leg and then they say we are going to chop it off you can be sure that they are doing guesswork as to where your the cells of your leg end and the cells of your torso begin because there's no screw there there are no nuts they just have to say uh i think apa and that's it or if it was an arm there's no way they can say okay so here these cells here are now for the torso these cells going downwards are for the arm so this is where we now separate there's nothing like that the arm enters into the torso and the torso has entered into the arm the leg has entered into the torso the torso has entered into the leg there is an integration there is a union there is what i'm calling here an organic union that's all that is being illustrated here in the words of our lord when he says just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us there is this union that is not organic it is one that is intrinsically integrated intrinsically one now we often think in terms of the father and the son as two persons quite right but then at the same time we say one god we do it and uh, non-christians think we are just confusing things but the bible doesn't as far as the bible is concerned they are not two gods but one god integrated and yet very clear distinct beings and it is because of that organic union that we end up with the activities that are organizational activities that are visible for anybody to see let's quickly look at john 14 and uh, verse 10 john 14 verse 10 i want us to see this same reality john 14 and verse 10 
Let me begin from verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? <laughs> That's a little confusing. He's saying, show us the Father, not saying, show us you. But Jesus is saying, I've been with you, and you're still asking, what's your problem? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I, there it is, am in the Father, and the Father is in me? There it is again. This organic union. So, for you to be trying to separate us with a, a, a screwdriver and say, okay, actually, you, you belong here, you belong here. Now, you show us this one. It is, it's really confusing matters because we are so integrated. There is such a union that actually there's only one God. And I'm here, he is saying. But notice the activity that comes out of that. The words that I said to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Or his works. Notice, I'm speaking, but actually, the Father who is in me is speaking. And then he ends by saying, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Anybody should be able to see that these are the works of God. Anybody should be able to say it. That God is among us. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is now conveying in this text. He is saying, listen carefully, that we have a union, a very deep union in the Godhead. And then he's saying this, I want those that I save to participate in this union. Wow! Wow! If there's a topic you've never studied, I want to challenge you to study it. I don't have the time to open it up. And it's simply the title, Union with Christ. Millennials, you can Google. Just Google it. Union with Christ. Theologians say that with respect to our experience of salvation, we either are correct or we are wrong, and it is always best on our understanding of union with Christ. Always. And I think they are right. Because that's the fountainhead of our spiritual experience. When the Bible speaks about us being seated at the right hand of the Father, already seated with Christ there, you're saying, oh, hang on, hang on, I'm here. 
How can you speak about me being in heaven already? Well, it's again this union with Christ. We are so one with him. The, the, the closest way in which it can be pictured is in the marriage relationship between husband and wife. That's, that's the closest human example, apart from, of course, the human body itself, where back to 1 Corinthians 12, we won't go back to it physically now, where we are told that we are immersed into Christ. We are baptized into Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Or, to borrow the, the way that the Apostle Paul speaks in, uh, in, in Romans, we are grafted into Christ. Grafted into Christ. So that they, we, we are one with Him. And that's the reason why when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me! And Paul was confused. At that time, his name was Saul. How am I persecuting you, Lord? Well, definitely, when you are touching the church, you are touching the apple of my eye. That's what it is. The touching the apple of my eye. There is such an integration between Christians and Christ. When we are saved, we are immersed into him. We become one with him. The life of God through Jesus Christ, by his spirit, flows through the branches. And we are those branches. We are vitally connected with the Godhead. That's the reason when people are talking about, you no, know, you lose your salvation, you lose your salvation, you're thinking, how? How? When you are in him, and he's in you, and how? Union with Christ. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And the spirit, as we saw from 1 Corinthians 12, is the one who does it. This prayer has been answered. It's been answered in the very DNA of the church, in the very DNA of salvation. It's been answered. You see, people who believe other religions, all they do is they simply believe the teachings of those other religions. That's all. It's all mental, okay? It, it might finally result in them doing very bad things, but it's still just mental. Nothing has changed in their spirits. Nothing. They are still the way they were before as they will be after. Not for a true believer. The 
powers of the coming age invade your soul. Invade your soul. At the point you become a Christian, you are united to God, the creator of the entire universe. You don't become God. Of course you don't. So in that sense, you are here, he's there. But, as I said, you are united spiritually. You are sealed in him. You are one with him. Now, it is because of that that we become one. You and you and you and you as Christians, despite our varied backgrounds, varied backgrounds, because each one of us is being immersed into this one body by the Spirit. We are being united to God in this way. We, we find an affinity towards one another that the world knows absolutely nothing about. Absolutely nothing. And that's what Paul was speaking about in Ephesians and chapter 2. Just, just quickly go there. Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 10. I don't have the time to open it up completely. But uh, I still want us to see how it, Paul speaks about in this body, in this one body. Let's quickly go there. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Um, I'm trying to see where to start. It's really verse 16 that I want us to look at. Um, yeah, let me just start from there. Otherwise, we'll be starting from verse 11. There are too many thoughts in between. Okay, let me begin from verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, there it is, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So that unity takes place in his death on the cross. Listen to this. Verse 16. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby, notice, killing the hostility. Bringing a brand new relationship between those who were hostile to each other before as they come to Christ. And then he says, I'll just skip verse 17 for now, verse uh, 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and on and on he goes. Verse 21, or maybe let's just quickly go to verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God 
by his spirit. So this integration is something God does by his spirit. And I want to repeat, it gives us not an organizational affinity primarily. It gives us that relationship. That relationship that is higher than all the superficial differences that we might have. Higher than that. It makes us one. And you'll notice it even in your offices where, or schools. You might have, uh, let's call them brothers and sisters, who have, you know, different beliefs from you. Maybe, say, on the Holy Spirit, or on baptism, or maybe on eschatology, and so on. You know, there are a number of areas where we don't see eye to eye. But there is a, a connection that you have with them that you'd be willing to put your neck on the chopping board for them. You know this is my brother. You know this is my sister. You have real fellowship with them. That the people, other people in your office, when they're looking at you, they are saying, they're simple. They're like brother and sister, or like brothers, or something like that. It's like they grew up together. And yet you go to different churches. And you, you even have some areas where you don't agree. But there is real fellowship. There is a, a unity in spirit that cannot be described in any other way. Or sometimes it's even in the natural family. There are six, seven, eight of you who are born to the same parents. And then two of you get saved. Have you noticed what happened? The two of you become like this. Not because you're just trying to pretend or anything. No. There is that extra. That real, real extra. That you don't need to crank up. The spirit of the living God has immersed you, has baptized you into the body of Christ. You are one with him, and therefore one with each other. Now you can imagine when that is now in the local church itself, the local church. You've got a common confession, a common creed, and you meet together so regularly to worship your Father in heaven. Your, 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 the differences in skin color, the differences in tribe, the difference in social strata and social standing, economics and so on, all pale into absolute insignificance. Absolute insignificance. You, you sense the, the oneness that you have. And it's not manufactured on the outside. It's real. It's real. It's real. What's the result of that? With that I must end. It is that the world fails to process it completely. The world says, mm, it's not possible. 
And therefore, they begin to think that this Christianity must be real. Look at the way Jesus puts it. Back to our text. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. What's the result of that? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why should they believe that you have sent me? It's because what is happening in the church is impossible. It's impossible. The world is full of fights. Marital fights. Family fights. Racial fights. Tribal fights. Gender fights. International fights. Political fights. Civil fights. That's the world we are in. Fights everywhere. Based on all kinds of divisions. We, we, we seem to, to look for why we should fight. We, we, we look for it. Short people fight towards, <laughs> and vice versa. Eh? We'll always look for reasons for fighting. And then they come into the church and they find that those things out there, there is a genuine love for one another. Genuine love. There's no selfish interest. There's nobody who's, who's trying to get to the top so that he can have all these advantages to himself. There's nobody who's interested in that. What are they interested in? Saving one another. That's what they're interested in. Saving one another. Saving one another. And no, there must be some underhanded reasons here. Come on. It can't be They find that we are from different tribes, different ethnic groups, different nations, different backgrounds, but we love one another sincerely, deeply. They say, there must be something more. This is not just a club. This is not just an association. There must be something happening here. Jesus Christ says it will open doors for them to believe that you sent me. Well, brethren, let me close by one or two quick appeals. It is this. I already said it to begin with. We must fight for unity. When individuals among us are trying to take advantage of the church as a family, to try and steal away disciples for themselves by painting this one black and the other one orange and the other one some terrible color like red, 
let us fight because it's the honor of Christ at stake. It's the honor of Christ. It is that the world may see that the Father sent him into the world. Look at the evidence. Look at them. And then I also want to put another way around. And it is this. When out of selfish reasons, maybe your own heart which is either unconverted or backslidden, you begin to want to bring disunity to the church, you are playing where angels fear to tread. Jesus is jealous about his church. He is. He's jealous about the unity of his church. Can you believe it? It was the very first prayer request. And then there you are, no, this one is bad, and the other one is bad. No, let's segregate in that one and so on. Let's pull that one down. And in the church, and in the process, the church cannot do its business properly. It can't. And non-Christians, especially those whom we are bringing up in our own homes, who know about the gossip and slander happening in our homes, they come, they look at you and they say hypocrites that's all they are just hypocrites as soon as they get into their cars the gossip and slander begins hypocrites it's just the same as the football club that i'm a member of at school same thing we are playing where angels fear to tread let us be jealous for the unity of the church as Jesus Christ himself made it a priority in prayer. Amen.